If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the first History Extra podcast for October 2012. Coming up this week, we have... Readers have to be engaged as well as to be able to understand. So you have to be able to produce characters in whom they can recognise something of them of themselves. That was Catherine Butler on History for Children. He was saying that he had resisted an unjust decree for no other purpose than that all might bear an equal share of the public burden and contribute according to their means. And that was David Horsepool discussing rebels of the past. listening to the History Extra podcast, which is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this plus great subscription deals at our website, which is historyextra.com. And if you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast.historyextra.com, on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash historyextra. The writing of history for children has undergone many changes over the past 60 years. 
Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met up with Catherine Butler, co-author of a new book on the subject, at the BBC History magazine offices in Bristol, to find out how authors, both past and present, have tried to engage children with the past. What made you want to examine the way history is written for children? Well, I wrote this book in conjunction with a friend and colleague of mine, Hallie O'Donovan, and actually she was the one who, as a child, had been a real... Uh, historical novel buff you know she'd read a lot of historical fiction for children I on the other hand although I had a strong interest in history didn't have that background and in fact I noticed I had a slight reluctance to read historical novels so partly I was curing myself but partly I was interested as to why that was and um, reading as I've obviously had to do for this book uh, a lot of historical books, not just straight historical novels, but fantasy, non-fiction and various other kinds as well, has given me a new respect, I've got to say, for the extreme skill and for the overcoming of some severe technical problems which are, which, which come up whenever you try to set stories in, in the past, not just of research, but all kinds of ones about point of view and what kind of assumptions you can take for granted in your reader and what kind of assumptions you project onto your main characters and so forth. Yeah. I mean, how does historical reading experience available today, uh, sort of in and out of the classroom, how does that differ from, say, 60 years ago? Well, there's obviously more more available in, in terms of not just books, but the web, TV programmes and so on. So the sources for historical information, not just in books, is is that much greater Certainly if you take a non-fiction history book of today that's given to, say, primary age children and its equivalent from 60 years ago, you'll be struck by the lack of text comparatively. Text tends to be in quite small chunks. There's a lot more pictures. A lot of non-fiction books like the Dorling Kindersley ones and um, many of the others which have gone down the same kind of design route tend to use a lot of captions, inset boxes, so that rather than having one authoritative voice telling you what happened in a connected narrative, you will tend to get a series of facts, a series of points of view, um, jumbling all together. And how does that different, differ to how it, how it used to be? Well, in, in the past, you would tend to have far more text far and, and, and relatively fewer pictures, and it would be a, a very much a sort of univocal idea of, of history told from a particular point of view. Very often, for example, there would be an assumption that history was progressive, that it was leading towards you know, sunlit uplands, towards greater levels of civilization and technology. And that's something which I think is still there, actually, perhaps more than we would like to admit, but it certainly coexists now with other more sceptical discourses. And do you think there's a tendency to oversimplify history for children these days? Well, I don't know. I, I think you can't teach history without simplifying because there's so much of it even if we had as we obviously don't a complete set of data about everything that ever happened in the past trying to teach that within the confines of the school day would involve some kind of simplification so the question is really what kind of simplification and I think that today perhaps more than in the past we're well, I, I speak as a literary critic, not a history teacher, so I, I'm not an expert in this, but as far as I, I can see and as far as I've been able to find out, there is more attention paid these days to what I think is very valuable, that is to say, 
um, to a certain you know, self-reflexivity, to thinking about how do we know other alternative points of view might might it have happened a different way rather than having as i say this um this this grand narrative um but uh, at the same time there is a price to be paid for that because and especially in in terms of the national curriculum it, perhaps the attempt the time spent on that means there's less time for actually getting information and one criticism that I would have of history as it's been taught in primary schools as mandated by the national curriculum is that it's extremely selective and in a very uniform way across the country. So everybody pretty much learns about the Tudors, everybody learns about the Victorians, everybody learns about the Second World War, but there are, there are vast swathes of history which are fairly untouched. Mm. And I think I say in the book that, for example, the 30 years from 1685... You know, that from 1685 to 1715, that includes the Glorious Revolution. It includes the acts of succession and you know, the, the act of union. It in, includes the Treaty of Utrecht. It includes the coming of the Hanoverians. You know, I, I would find it hard to think of another 30-year period mm. in history which has as many implications for the country as it is today as that as that 30 years and yet i think that's barely barely touched in in primary school so i I find that a shame and also the fact that there's through this emphasis on particular periods there's less emphasis on the way that history might be connected up in how one period might set up the conditions for another or how history might even you know to use a cliche repeat itself although of course never quite so what type of history would you see in a book from the 1950s, say, that's been written for children? Well, um, if we take... Well, actually, the picture is fairly similar across non-fiction and fiction, according to our research. We, we did a case study of the Roman invasion of Britain in AD 43 and its aftermath up to the building of Hadrian's Wall. And... What we found when we looked at books from the 1950s, whether they were historical novels or whether they were non-fiction books for children, was that this whole episode, by and large, was presented in a positive light. It was seen as the coming of civilization to what had been a barbarous island. Um, the Druids were seen very much as you know, human-sacrificing demonic priests. <laughs> at, and... The Romans, by contrast, were bringing wine, luxury goods, cities, law and order, and literacy, and ultimately Christianity as well. And so in the 1950s context, this is all seen as a good thing. Um, But, of course, in the intervening 60 years or so, there have been a lot of developments which might make us want to revise that opinion perhaps the most important being the end of empire and the the idea that invading another country and imposing your values on it and in effect also imposing military servitude on them and taking away all their natural resources this is no longer seen as obviously justifiable so modern narratives of the roman invasion for children tend to put the boot on the other foot the britons are represented as um, you know, having a having a culture wor- very well worth preserving, and the uniformity and m- almost mechanisation of the Roman army is not seen so sympathetically. Of course, we've also seen since in the last sixty years the rise of multinationals. The idea that the Romans could, for example, produce 
almost identical forts in any part of their empire used to be seen as something which is how amazing how how well organized they are now it seems rather deadening it seems rather anonymous Mm. and similarly with um the, the rise of the ecological movement the Britons now tend to be, and Druidism in particular, tends to be um, seen as a kind of nature religion, and the Druids are there as sort of eco-priests very often, and the Romans are coming along without any regard for for the ecology or for the culture of the place where they've come. They're, they're driving their straight roads through sacred groves, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing which we can find echoed in, for example, you know, a few years ago, for example, the plan to put a motorway straight through or right next to the hill of Tara in Ireland and similar protests in this country. So it has a kind of echo and writers more recently then have tended to take the British side, if you like, in that dispute. On both, in both areas, there are more nuanced and more complex um, Efforts you know, <laughs> towards towards um, producing a, a more two-sided picture, but um, as a general headline, that's what I would say about the difference. Okay, do you think historical accuracy is important when writing fiction for children? I think it is important, but I don't think it's the only important thing. Um, it's got to be put into the scales with other desirable things. Mm. For example, being comprehensible. Um, if you wrote a historical novel set in the Middle Ages and had them speaking all Middle English, it would not be very comprehensible. And however authentic it was, your book would not get read. So, yeah. so you know, at that very basic level, um, you know, accuracy has to be played off against other things. You want not only to have your readers to be able to, um, I'm thinking more of fiction here particularly, readers have to be engaged as well as to be able to understand. So you have to be able to produce characters in whom they can recognize something of them of themselves that doesn't mean to say that you have to transport the sensibility of a 21st century child or or adult indeed into the middle ages or whenever it happens to be but it does mean that you have to find some way of offering them a way in and occasionally an anachronism creeps in in that way but also there's a question of genre. I think if you're writing something like a horrible history sketch, then naturally you're going to make allusions to modern things because that's how the humour works. Um, and that's anachronistic. It's not accurate history, but everybody knows that that's not going to be accurate history because they understand that it's a comic genre. They don't expect it. So I think if you're writing non-fiction, or if you're writing a very straight historical novel, then the obligation for historical accuracy is that much greater. I was actually going to ask you about the Horrible History series. Um, What are your thoughts on more modern approaches to teaching children about history, such as the Horrible History series? I like the Horrible History series (laughs) myself, (laughs) yes. Um, Horrible Histories, as we know, is history with the the boring bits left out. Mm. But what's left in is is generally accurate. When when I was saying about it having anachronistic elements, it's... I was thinking as much of the television show as of the actual mm. books, where they're often riffing off pop hits or or, or recent recent TV programs. So clearly, they're making connections between the present and the past as a way of explaining the past. But I don't think they're expecting those connections to be more than an amusement. I don't think they're offering them as a serious historical thesis very much of the time. 
But Horrible Histories, I'm sure, has led people to read about the past in 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 more depth. I I feel a little hesitant to take that line because certainly when... um, my my speciality is children's literature, and when people were talking about the Harry Potter books when they were coming out a few years ago, one line which I have very often heard people saying was, well, at least it's got children reading, and I, I cheer by a little bit at the idea that you know, children's literature in general should be a kind of stepping stone to adult literature, or that books shouldn't be looked at in their own terms. It does have that function, but I think we ought to look at it in its own terms as well. And Horrible Histories works very well for what it is and what it tries to be. They are funny books. They do teach you about history. And they do, in fact, show certain elements of history which most conventional history books tend to gloss over and certainly did in the past. And what do you think are the challenges facing history in schools today? I'm not, as I say, a history teacher, and I'm not really... um, able to give you an expert answer on that as I understand that the history curriculum is in the process of being reviewed at the moment so it may well be that some of the things about which I've expressed doubts will be addressed in that. Certainly having read the inspectors reports, the Ofsted reports on history as a whole um, for the last few years in the course of writing this book, uh, there was a repeated concern with children's not having a kind of sense of historical chronology, not having a sense of the big picture um, of how certain issues, such as poverty, for example, change their nature as you move from, say, the Middle Ages to the Tudor period to now. Um, what, what it means to say you're poor is three very different things in those three ages. And I think something which allow, which gave children the tools to investigate these things for themselves would be what we would ultimately want because, as I said, time is limited. You can't teach children everything. What you can do is try and give them the tools to find out the rest for themselves. That's what I would like. And so finally, what? who are your favourite authors when it comes to writing history for children? Uh, of the classics, I suppose. Uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe's got mm. to be out there with her Roman books particularly, but also her other Dark Age books and indeed other books beyond that. But yes, Rosemary Sutcliffe, especially when we were looking at those 1950s books about the Romans, to us it seemed very clear that Rosemary Sutcliffe was head and shoulders above the rest and you could really appreciate the subtlety of her achievement more clearly when you were putting her alongside other people who were working in a similar genre, trying to do on the face of it similar things, but Mm. by comparison failing so abysmally. Um, And... In the modern era, there are many um, very good historical writers, but one of the ones which, um, you know, the one which sprang to my mind first when you asked that question, so perhaps that's the one I'll go with, not really a historical writer at all, but a, a historical book, which was Philip Reeve's Here Lies Arthur, which is set, obviously, in the time of, of Arthur. It's It's not a magical book, it's not a magical version of Arthur, but it's a Dark Age retelling. And which, of course, is, is also something that Rosemary Sutcliffe did in, in her day. And w- with its poise, its storytelling skill, um, and its very, very intelligent avoiding of the usual pitfalls of trying to tell stories about King Arthur, of which there are many, 
Um, I was extremely impressed with Philip Reeves' um, foray into historical fiction. Normally he's seen as a science fiction writer, so uh, I really hope that he'll come back to that and do more in the same vein, because I thought it was great. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That was Catherine Butler, co-author of Reading History in Children's Books, which has just been published by Palgrave Macmillan. Now we have a short advertisement break. Be part of the British Academy's brand new Modern History Week in November 2012 in association with BBC History magazine. The Making and Breaking of States are three lectures exploring how countries are perceived, broken and created with renowned academics including Professor Mark Mazower. Register now to attend our free events and the Modern History Week at www.britac.ac. UK. Mary Fulbrook takes a personal exploration of the experiences of the victims of Auschwitz who passed through the town of Bedzin and the ambivalence of the Nazi civilian administrator Udo Klauser, who she knew personally. What I do in the book is a combination of a professional history, I am a professional historian, and a deeply personal exploration of the experiences of the victims and on the other hand I'm also trying to to explore the ambivalence of the administrator his own inner unease knowing that as he put it he was innocently becoming guilty becoming involved in the policies in this area where he got frightened about where racism was leading so it's a confrontation of behaviour and its consequences 
and a confrontation of memory with history and an exploration of how it was that the Holocaust was actually possible even when people didn't intend it to come into being. A small town near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust by Mary Fulbrook, publishes September 2012 and is available direct from Oxford University Press and all good bookshops. Our second interview this week is with historian and author David Horsepool. Together with the actor Colin Firth and the American writer Anthony Arnove, David has helped put together The People Speak, a compilation of speeches, letters, songs and other sources that reveal Britain's radical past. I began the interview by asking David to fill me in on the background to The People Speak project. Well, I came to it quite late. Um, it all springs for an American um, book initially by a, an American historian called Howard Zinn, who in the, I think, 1970s wrote a book called The People's History of the United States. And it became extremely popular. Um, and it presented a sort of alternative um, view of, um, of US history from the popular perspective. Um, and from that came a book called Voices of a People's History uh, of the US, which um, just took the original texts of people's speeches and memoirs and um, that sort of diaries and things like that, telling the story of American history. They then started to um, have events around the US with uh, readings from, from this uh, collection and they would update it every so often and um, lots of actors got involved with making this um, these events happen um, and I'm not entirely clear whether um, Colin Firth who's the um, co-editor of, of the book with Anthony Arno whether he performed first or whether he um, just went along to see one of these performances in America but he was obviously inspired by it and got together with Anthony Arno who is um, was Howard Zinn's colleague. Howard Zinn died a year ago, I think. And Colin was interested in seeing if there could be a British version of this project, initially as a, as a live dramatic presentation, which is what they put together um, two years ago now. Uh, they put together a documentary for the History Channel and a performance which drew together some British versions, as it were, of this kind of popular history. And um, from that, they were inspired to try to put together books. They had so many readings that didn't go into it that couldn't be put in an hour of television or a bit longer on stage. Um, so from that, that's what the initial project was. And then I was asked to kind of join in because Anthony uh, Arno is an American historian, a documentary filmmaker, and... Colin Firth, we know who he is. Neither of them are British historians, so I'm a historian of England and Britain, um, wrote a book called The English Rebel, and so I was asked by the publishers to sort of come in on the project. Were you the person responsible for selecting the speeches of the other documents that appear in the book? No, I'd say, um, I wouldn't like to say a percentage for certain, but I'd say a, the certain great majority of the pieces were already there most of what we were doing was cutting things back a, a big research team i think had put together under 
Anthony and Colin's direction and they'd found things themselves, the initial kind of run of um, sources. And then it was a question mainly of cutting back and occasionally of kind of trying to fill in perceived gaps. So I made some selections for the final book, but the vast majority were already in place. And so what kind of source material would a reader expect to find in this book? Um, well, everything from uh, extracts from medieval chronicles to uh, uh, contemporary pop songs, like um, or almost contemporary pop songs like Elvis uh, Costello's Shipbuilding, um, and everything from letters to the press to speeches in court to speeches to Parliament, um, lots of speeches to various gatherings uh, from Chartist suffragettes to freedom movements across across Britain and actually through the empire, because that's another aspect of the book, that it's not just confined to Britain, it's Britain and the empire. There's a section of the book called Empire and Race, which uh, looks at that. So an absolute kind of smorgasbord of, of different kind of material is, is on show, most of which we've tried to pick stuff which has a kind of contemporary resonance, no matter how far back it comes from, but that might speak to people's concerns today. What would you say are the common themes that run through the book? Well, that's it's quite hard to... I mean, when we were looking at it, one of the great sort of discussions we had when putting the material together for publication was whether to present it chronologically or to present it in themes. And we've gone for a sort of amalgam of both. We've got some sort of headline things um, that take you through the story of British history chronologically from about the Norman Conquest to pretty much the present day. Um, and interspersed with are much longer sections on themes such as the relationship between the nations of Britain, uh, money and class, empire and race, environment, uh, gender and gender equality and sexuality. Um, so we take, you can pick up common themes. I was looking yesterday, for example, um, because I was asked about the Occupy movement, which came a bit too late for, to, to get into the book, but um, whether themes from that could, could be found in earlier parts. And I realised that the very first entry that we have for um, the section on money and class, um, is, it's dated from to an event in 1196 when a man called William Fitzosbert was protesting against attacks and ended up being dragged from sanctuary and hanged. And he said that he was saying that he had resisted an unjust decree for no other purpose than that all might bear an equal share of the public burden and contribute according to their means, which is you know exactly the sort of thing that you could imagine people saying only slightly different language thousand years later so the the themes that run through are things like the struggle for fairness the struggle for justice the struggle for equal rights the struggle to be heard for various different minorities or people who are treated as minorities like women that that sort of theme runs through it and and the com another common theme is that ordinary people have a voice that has a power to resist um, just accepting what, what's done to them throughout British history. From what I gather, it's quite a sort of alternative history book. Would it be fair to call it a left-wing history book? 
I think it probably would. Um, yeah, I should think I'm kind of less explicit in my political direction, I would say, than than Anthony, for example, who I think is would absolutely describe himself as um, you know, a, a left-wing historian. Um, but I hope that it wouldn't only seem to appeal to a kind of left-wing, extremely radical audience. I mean, I don't think that that would entirely describe it. Uh, what we, we've found is that people's experiences, ordinary people's experiences through British history sort of come out this way. Um, it's not that we've had to look very hard for the fact that most of the time through British history, there have been people who have been oppressed and people who have stood up to oppression. So it's it's quite a... At times, it's an angry-making book, I suppose, at the injustices, but at times it's an extremely uplifting book as well because you can see how people have... The subtitle is The Voices That Change Britain. You can see how people have changed Britain. And it allows you to see how things that were seen uh, in the past as beyond the pale, as unlikely ever, ever happened, as utopian. Things like votes for all citizens, votes for women, things like freedom from slavery, um, things at a slightly less extreme level, like uh, the right to roam uh, through the countryside, how these things have been fought for, and they've gone from being strange and radical and peculiar and, and in some sense you might describe it as left-wing to being what we accept as the mainstream and I think there's no better illustration of that than the story that's emerged from the book of gender and sexuality that you know, we now have a conservative-led coalition that have, are introducing um, measures for gay marriage well this isn't a very long time since there was a Conservative um, party who were introducing measures to suppress the teaching of homosexual lifestyles, I think it was called, Clause 28. So the idea that things are left or right wing, it depends at what point you, you sort of take the temperature because things that might seem to us very mainstream today might have seemed very radical 20, 30, 100, 200, 300 years ago. So I, I wouldn't like it to be kind of put in a in a ghetto of left wing, right wing. Um, I think it's it is it's a history for everybody. And, and from what you're saying, do you believe that that history shows that Britain has become a more equal and a more just society over the centuries? Then, yes, in many respects, I think you'd have to absolutely say that. Of course, um, we've got the vote. We abolish slavery. We we treat people of different sexualities um, equally. Uh, we have definitely become a freer society. But I don't think the story's over yet. Um, you know, I don't think there's a, a kind of complacent end to. It's not a. It's not what you'd call a Whig history. This um, we're not sort of progressing to the to the present and saying everything's fine now. We still go to war. Despite the objections of millions of people, we still have debates over how economic uh, fairness should be parceled out. We, um, we've got a voice at the, towards the end of the book um, of a student protesters protesting against, in fact, he's a schoolboy at the time, protesting against the um, tuition fees introduction. So, yes, of course, I think it's right to say we've got fairer and more equal but 
um, that doesn't mean we're a totally fair and totally equal society or that, that this strand of British people standing up for what they believe in will sort of die away. So this is a British version of a previously American project. What do you see as the key differences between the two different versions? First of all, uh, the length of time, obviously, that, that we're, we're looking at. Um, the Howard Zinn and Anthony Arnove Voices book begins with Columbus. Um, we begin with the Norman Conquest. So we've got almost 500 years more to cover. So that's, I think there are, there are some very obvious themes in, in American history um, which come out in versions of British history as well to do with the treatment of native populations, for example, um, but which are, in our case, more to do with Britain looking out rather than an internal story. So those are differences there. Um, I think also that uh, uh, Americans have a view um, of themselves enshrined in American education, starting with the Declaration of Independence um, and that providing an alternative view to that to show that the promises of the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution were not always kept and were quite often explicitly broken is a very strong story. It's a more... um, disparate story in the British case because you might also say we're, we're less wouldn't like to say naive but we, we have fewer possibly illusions about our historical record and how we've had to struggle for, for rights and, and what has been done by British people and in our name throughout the world that we might not be so proud of today so so there are different differences there as well i know this is a tough question but do you have a favorite source within the book well it's um i uh, we're talking about this with anthony actually he said it's a bit like being asked your favorite bob dylan song and um yeah i, I said yeah we, you could sort of say my favorite one today some of the things that i kind of suggested i hold quite close um such that i put forward some of the voices of the Greenham Common women, which I find extraordinarily moving. I think they were so um, traduced at the time in the 1980s. They were kind of mocked in the mainstream press hugely. Um, And their kind of dignity and cleverness and wit comes through in these accounts of their... They did things like put darning and knitting across the fences of the Greenham Common airbase which just absolutely enraged the guards who had to tear this stuff down because it was very annoying and knotty. It wasn't like kind of being able to bulldoze something and they had to untie knitting. This sort of thing, you know, sort of witty protest really appeals to me. Um, But in terms of the kind of absolutely things that uplift you totally, things like uh, there's a, a source, Ernest Jones, talking about the Indian mutiny and explaining how, contrary to very prevalent popular opinion in Britain at the time, that it, it was really British Britain's duty to support um, the Hindus, as he calls them, in resisting Britain's own imperial might, because in every other foreign case of 
a nation rising up against a foreign oppressor. Britain had supported, in Hungary's case, for example, or across Europe, they'd supported the national uprising. And he saw no reason why this should be different for the Indians, just because the nation who happened to be in charge was Britain. So it's a very, it's a very cleverly, forcefully argued um, case, but it's also incredibly emotionally appealing. That was David Horsepool. The People Speak, Voices That Changed Britain, was published recently by Canongate. And that's about all for this week's episode. We'll be back next week where we'll be joined by Professor David Reynolds and the author Bernard Cornwall. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.